0: where Liberty is our mission today is Friday April 11th 2014 this is podcast number 369 and my name is Ben stone it's been a little while since I've done a direct podcast like this that's not an interview or not something else like that uh, I would expect in a, you know having been away from the mic for so long and uh, not doing regular podcasts uh, I would expect that uh, that the audience would like to hear an update as to the different things that have been going on, uh, what with uh, my you know heart failure and almost dying and a few minor events like that that took place. Uh, I I do plan at some point on uh, having a, a podcast just strictly sort of an update to the Bad Quaker website and what's going on, you know, going to PortFest Fest and uh, what my health is like and all. I I am eventually will do a podcast like that. Um that's not the purpose of today's podcast though. So uh you know if you're looking for that kind of a podcast be sure and check back maybe the next one that I do uh perhaps next week. Uh I'll I'll do an update like that just to kind of let the listeners know, uh, long-term listeners know what's going on. Today's podcast specifically is for the purpose of explaining uh the the anarcho-capitalist position to a person who is maybe more right-leaning or more conservative in thought so so this is a very specific podcast for that reason for that reason i'm going to be going over some things that are uh specifically in reference to say debunking the the myth that involves the constitution of the united states and and sort of um you know, bringing in uh, the foundations of why it is that anarcho-capitalists believe what we believe. I'm, I'm working in that direction. It's not going to be all comprehensive, but it's going to be in that direction to sort of explain some of the reasons why anarcho-capitalists feel that the Constitution is not only worthless, but it is uh, it, it is a negative in society. It's a false promise of hope. It's a false security device. It's like, uh, you know, my friend Michael Dean compared it to uh, to a a, a a bullet resistant vest that's not really bullet resistant. So it's something you you expect it to do a certain thing, and you literally you you trust your life with it, and yet it will not do what you think that it will do. It's security theater. It's like it's like all the stuff the TSA does at the airport. It doesn't actually make you safer and it actually does make you less safe because there are people who think that they're safer because of it and that's what the constitution brings to the table. Uh so this is going to be kind of radical for some people. All of my regular listeners, this is maybe it's going to be some old stuff, maybe it's going to be boring. But what I hope to do with this is I hope to say uh some things that you can that you can take to that relative or that friend or or somebody, i don't do a lot of outreach type uh, podcasts, but that 's what this podcast is it's a podcast that can be used to to get a friend or a relative or someone that you're having a conversation with to understand our side of this uh, of the conversation, so that's the whole purpose in it. It's not necessarily, uh, I mentioned a second ago, it's it's not comprehensive. It's not going to cover every single objection to anarcho-capitalism. What I'm trying to do here is just focus in on whether or not the Constitution is worth saving and worth protecting and worth defending, and whether we should trust uh, constitutionalists to be on our side. Because really and truly, the anarcho-capitalists and the constitutionalists are on opposite sides of a battlefield. And oftentimes, a lot of us don't realize that. And and that includes the constitutionalists themselves. They don't realize what side of the battle that they're on. They don't realize that to be a supporter of the Constitution means, literally, you are a socialist and you want a domineering government to tell you what to do in every aspect of your life. Now, I know that the constitutionalist doesn't realize that, they have been fooled. They have been hoodwinked, and they believe what they believe because they have been deceived. They're like the guy at a used car dealer who is in the process of buying a car that he thinks is a perfectly good car, but he's been lied to, and it's going to cost him dearly. And that's why that this, this podcast is made, to reach out to people who think the Constitution uh, was made for good purposes and, and will help them, and that they should defend it. So, so let's just launch into this. Uh, we're told that we have to defend the Constitution, but wasn't it the Constitution? Wasn't the Constitution the thing that was supposed to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty? Wasn't that what the Constitution was supposed to do? Isn't that what... The preamble of the Constitution specifically states that it is uh, written to do. That's the case. And yet, when we put these myths aside, the Constitution was actually written by a small group of elites to fool the commoners into believing that their new federal government would be held down and kept small and weak. The Constitution was literally written... By a group of lawyers, bankers, and land schemers and i 'm going to get into that in a minute. It was not who you think it was. it was not these mystical founding fathers who were so so good and they only did good things that 's all alive history uh, to kind of get a better view of where I'm trying to come at this. And this is going to be a little bit time sensitive, but I'm going to try to make it so that it it's not too time sensitive. And so that people, you know, a year from now or two years from now can still use this podcast to, to help explain our position to a constitutionalists right now. There's a guy named, Cl- I think his name is pronounced Cliven Bundy. It could be Cliven Bundy. Uh, he's in, uh, uh Nevada. And this is in the news currently. Um, but there's nothing new about this Bundy case. There is absolutely nothing new about it. It's been going on, uh, for a long time, not only with Bundy himself, but with other ranchers in Nevada, specifically in northern Nevada. Almost the identical thing took place just a couple of years ago. And he didn't, the guy up there didn't quite get the kind of, um, uh, publicity that Bundy is getting. But uh, but but it's been happening all over the West and it's been happening for years. It's been happening in the in the Mojave Desert in California, going all the way back into the 70s. Um, So this is not new. And it's going on right now in Los Angeles County in California, in the Mojave Desert, where uh, where, you know, property rights are being violated by the government and the people can do nothing about it. In the case of Bundy, you know actually, they actually sent out snipers and they sent out uh, federal agents uh, to take his property and and you know it, it's a real mess and it's very dangerous and people are comparing it to Waco and Ruby Ridge and they should they should compare it to Waco and Ruby Ridge because Waco and Ruby Ridge basically were this exactly the same thing it's where a federal government comes in onto people's private property and pushes them around and steals from them and ends up murdering them. That's exactly what happened in Waco. It's exactly what happened at Ruby Ridge, and that's what we're seeing take place here in the, in the beginning stages of it. Hopefully Bundy and his family won't lose their lives over this. But there is, like I'm saying, there's absolutely nothing unusual about this. The Bundy family has been, ra- has been ranching on their property for over 100 years they have been following legal customs that are known to the english speaking culture uh, that literally go back before the english language existed the 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 custom of the right of forage existed in english culture pre magna carta it's even older it, it was known in ireland and in the british isles before the angles and the saxons arrived the angles are where we get the word english they brought in this germanic language with them uh, from an area of, of uh, Germany, and uh, from the Angles, actually. And they brought that language in. And before the Angles and the Saxons even showed up with the English language, the right to forage was there. The right to forage was English before the English were English. Think about that for a minute. And now some bureaucrat in Washington, D.C., scribbles on a piece of paper, and the right to forage vanishes, just like that. And the Constitution is helpless to stop it. It it hasn't stopped it. This has been going on literally for 50, 60 years that I know of. And the Constitution has not and cannot stop it. It doesn't matter what's written on that paper. It doesn't matter. The government does what it wants to do. Sometimes it poses, sometimes it pretends that it's limited by the Constitution. But do you actually think that the Constitution allows the government to listen in on your phone calls, to read your emails, to stop you and search you on the street simply because a cop wants to? The Constitution doesn't allow any of that stuff, and the government does it anyway. Why? Because the Constitution, as as, uh, Spooner said in the 1800s, has either allowed what what we see in this government or it has been helpless to stop it. It either authorizes this behavior, or it's useless and it can't stop it. Either way, the Constitution is nothing but a false sense of security. It's a lie. It's been sold to you, and it is an absolute lie. It is a car with no wheels. It is useless. It's worse than useless. It's like a bulletproof vest that won't stop a bullet, because people depend on it. And then it lets them down. And people die because of that. There's a situation that's taking place. uh, We're we're in our... My wife and I are in our RV. And we're moving around the South. And we're really enjoying our retired life. And uh, so we're in Alabama, Mississippi, Florida area currently. And uh, some bureaucrat uh, in Washington, D.C. Decided to make some scribbles on a piece of paper. And normally... There is a, uh, a red snapper fishing season, uh, off the coast, off the Gulf Coast in, in Mississippi, Alabama, and, uh, uh, the northern part of Florida, in the panhandle of Florida. And so, because of this snapper, uh, uh, fishing season, and these, these snappers, they're like, you know, they're like two feet long, they're, they're big fish. And, and it's, uh, it's a sport fishing. Uh, fishermen love it because the snapper is, is not only do you get, you know, a lot of food, but also because it's a, it's a sport fishing. It's really fun to catch one of these big, big fish. Well, so people from all over the world really plan their vacations to come to southern Alabama uh, at this time of year to, to go sport fishing and catch the red uh, snappers. And some some bureaucrat in Washington D.C. just scribbles on a a piece of paper, and the law has changed, and that's it. And and nobody has a say so in it. Nobody in Alabama, nobody in Alabama, has has a word to say about it. I mean, they have plenty of words, but those words have no meaning whatsoever because some bureaucrat in Washington D.C. scribbled on a paper. Nobody in Alabama can now uh, uh, have any right to say anything about this. So, so here's what happens. So, so the guy in Washington DC, uh, he decides that the best thing for the snapper population is if we cut the season back. I I can't remember how many weeks they cut out of it now, three weeks or six weeks or something. So, uh, what are the the details? Don't matter really. It's, it's the fact that some guy in Washington DC can just scribble on a paper, and all of a sudden, it's illegal for you to fish. Think about that for a second. What is the old, old, old saying? If you give a man, if you if you give a man a fish he, fish, he eats for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, then he eats for the rest of his life. Fishing has always, since there have been humans, fishing has been a way that a starving man can live. Fishing is a way that the poor person can feed themselves without having to beg or without having to work for someone else or without having to, to steal or do something else. You, you, throughout the ages, you could always point to the water and say, if you're really hungry, fish, and people could do it. But not now. No, you kind of have to be rich to fish unless you're breaking the law. How is that? How have, how have humans sat down and allowed government to grow so powerful that it can say, you can fish, and you can't. You can fish now, but you can't fish tomorrow. You can fish tomorrow, but you can't fish today. How have we allowed government into that position? Has the Constitution stopped that? Has the Constitution allowed it? Has the Constitution been useless in, taking away, in, in stopping the government from taking away the basic human right to feed yourself with a fish? To Christians listening, did Jesus have a fishing permit? When he walked on the water and walked out to uh, when there was uh, to the boat to where the fishermen were fishing, did they have a permit? Did they ask someone's permission to go and fish? You see, let's take the Second Amendment of the Constitution, for example. It says that the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Infringed. That means uh, if you look at a garment, or if you look at a piece of cloth, look at a piece of cloth. The fringe is the very edge where the where the where the threads end. That's the fringe at the very edge where the threads end. That's fringe. In other words, if you can imagine your right to keep and bear arms as a piece of cloth laid out on a table, the fringe is right where the end of the threads where where they where the threads end. It's not in the middle of the cloth. So if you have a piece of property and you say where's the fringe of the property? It's right at the very edge of the property. It's not out in the middle. Okay, so what is our right to keep and bear arms? Well, obviously it's the right to 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 keep to yourself and to draw that in defense. To draw those arms in defense. That's what it means to bear. To bear arms is not to carry, it's to bring them to bear like a cannon when you bring something to bear on a can- with a cannon you're actually pointing the cannon at it that's what bringing to bear is in the olden days when you brought your brought brought your rifle to bear you were turning the rifle and pointing it at the object okay but even if it's just carrying it even if you just say well to bear it is to carry it we we can't in most of america most most people living in north america most people living in the united states It is against the law for most people to even possess on their body a weapon to defend themselves with and walk around in public, even if it's hidden or even if it's in the open. In most places, there's some kind of law that prevents them uh, from doing that unless they have a permission slip. Now, where in the Constitution does it say the right to keep and bear arms should not be infringed except you have to have a permission slip from some sheriff? Does it say that? No, but did it prevent that from happening? No. So it either failed to prevent that infringement or it allowed it. This is the situation in back to the snapper situation in southern Alabama. So so a guy in Washington D.C. scribbles on a paper. And what are the ripple effects of that? How does the how does the butterfly effect take place? With some, politi- some some bureaucrat, some unelected bureaucrat in Washington, D.C., scribbles on a paper. And now all of a sudden, the fisherman who, who has uh, a vast amount of money invested in a boat and a business so that he can take people out and go fishing every year, all of a sudden he can't do that. Six weeks of his business is killed in one scribble of a paper. And some guy who maybe he lives and works in Milwaukee or wherever, and he's he plans this every year. He takes vacation every year at this time. He has this planned uh, well ahead of time, and he goes all the way to southern Alabama, and he pays for a hotel, and he pays for restaurants, and he pays all this stuff so that he can have a vacation once a year, ride out on a boat, and catch Red Snapper. And now that's all canceled because of that guy in Washington, D.C. that scribbled on paper. So who is affected by this? Restaurant owners who are accustomed to ordering specific amounts of food for this for this increase in business, uh, who are accustomed to hiring extra people to handle the business, uh, motel owners, hotel owners, gas station attendants, all of these people who every year depend on this influx of business, all of a sudden it's gone, it's out, it's shut down because of that scribble on a paper. And there's nothing any of them can do about it. And back in Milwaukee, where that guy works. Now, uh, what's the use of him taking his six weeks of vacation? He can't go to Alabama and fish. So he just goes ahead and cancels his vacation, right? Well, how does that affect the, uh, the, the engine shop where he works? Well, the engine shop hires extra people... Uh, So that it can cover when some people go on vacation or when other people are off sick or whatever. If they knew that nobody was ever going to take vacation, they could hire less people. And they could run at a lower overhead and sell their engines cheaper, but there would be less people employed also. So this affects the economy in Milwaukee when some politician scribbles on a paper and cuts the, the fishing season in southern Alabama. And this goes throughout the nation, throughout the world. The the effects of this. Okay, so not as much lettuce is is sold to the restaurants in in southern Alabama. So that affects the truckers. That affects the people who are hauling the lettuce to southern Alabama. Not just lettuce. Every type of food and everything that would have been consumed. Flip-flops that are sold in the local surf shop are not going to get sold. This is going to affect people in factories in China and India, all because that guy in Washington, D.C., scribbled on a piece of paper, and everybody else thought that because he scribbled there, we have to obey that. That's what the Constitution brought you. It brought you a government that can interfere in people's lives to that extent to tell you you cannot uh, have your cattle eat the grass on this land where they have eaten the grass for over a hundred years. You cannot go over here and throw a line into the water and catch a fish like human beings have done for eons of time. You can't do it because some politician, some stinking bureaucrat in Washington, D.C., scribbled on a piece of paper. That's what your Constitution brought to you. It didn't bring you any security. It didn't bring any real limits to government. It brought you Slavery to a government that can pretty much do anything they want to do. They can, they can listen to your private conversations. They can search your property. They can stop you on the street. They can force you to do all kinds of things. They can take 60 70% of your income from your labor, from the sweat of your brow. And the Constitution either allows it or is helpless to stop it. And it is worse than, than useless. If it was only useless, then we could point out that it's useless, and that would be the end of it. But it's worse than useless because people believe in it. People believe that it will do good, and so they, so they cling to it. And as they cling to this false security, it gives them the false belief that their government is good and that their government is restricted and held back and held in check. And it's none of those things. And it never has been. And that's part of the myth. Part of the myth is that, um, that you know, just a, a few years ago, things weren't like this. Yeah, they were. Oh, uh, When I was a kid, things weren't like this. Yes, they were. Well, back in the 50s, things weren't like this. Yes, they were. Well, I remember when I was young, things weren't like this. Yes, they were. The government has always been doing this. Not only the United States government. This is the tendency of all governments. Every pharaoh... Every Caesar, every one of them, this is their tendency. They will always rob from the people as much as they can get away with robbing. They will oppress the people as much as they can get away with oppressing. They always have because it's because government itself is based on theft, aggression, and the threats of aggression. That's the only reason it exists, and that's the only way that it exists. This is not at all new the myth that things used to be great in america that people used to be free in america has been used by politicians to fool uneducated conservatives for as long as there have been as long as there has been a federal government the conservative myth of america is based on a pretend history that never happened think about the think about those faces on mount rushmore People people look at Mount Rushmore and they get a warm fuzzy feeling and they think, Oh, look at that, those great men up there on that on that mountain, look at those faces. Oh, they were such great men. Washington, Lincoln, Roosevelt, and Jefferson. Let's just think about these four guys. George Washington never cut down his father's cherry tree. Did you know that? That is entirely a lie. George Washington, his father died when he was a baby. He probably had no memory whatsoever of his father ever living. This was a lie that was made up to get people to think George Washington was this great and honest man to get him elected as president. Do you know the the process that Washington used to get elected in the very first presidential election in America? Well, it just so happens that Washington also owned, in addition to other things, he also owned... Uh, the The largest whiskey distillery in this, in the new states in in the former colonies he was the largest whiskey producer in in the United States at the time of his election and Did you know that the way that he got elected was he sent barrels of whiskey out to the polling places and if you showed up and voted for George Washington, you would get a mug of whiskey. Now, that's not something I just made up. That's a very well-known historical fact. It's easy to check it out for yourself. George Washington bought the first presidential election by giving out free whiskey. And then once he got to be president, once he once he secured that, that spot as president, the very first thing pretty much that he did was get the whiskey uh, tax passed, which brought more tax on the people than they had ever seen from the British way more than they had ever seen from the British and it just so happens that here's the guy who's the largest whiskey producer in the country pushing a whiskey tax and he also got to decide how much the tax was and how it was uh, how it was distributed how it was not distributed but how it was collected so he got to decide how his own whiskey company was taxed and how his competitors were taxed that's what George Washington did in his very first presidency. And you know, he didn't have a standing army. It was actually, it's against the Constitution to have a standing army. It's right in there. Now here, let me back this up. Let me take this off in a different direction for a second. Almost to a man, every constitutionalist, every self-proclaimed constitutionalist I have ever met has never read the Constitution, and I'm not talking about the Ten Amendments. I'm not talking about the Bill of Rights, and I'm not talking about other amendments that have been added later. The actual Constitution is not the Bill of Rights. Most con- most so-called constitutionalists don't know this. The Constitution is one thing. The Bill of Rights are ten amendments that were placed onto it. They changed it. They were, They bent it. They adjusted it. They clarified it. But the Constitution itself is not the Bill of Rights. It's a separate document. And almost to a man, I have never met a constitutionalist constitutionalist who had actually read the Constitution. And the vast majority of them didn't know there was such a thing. They thought the Constitution was the Bill of Rights. We're talking apples and oranges here. All right, so back to my topic with Washington. So Washington bought the first election with whiskey. Then Washington used his power and his influence as president to get his competitors taxed unfairly and to not get taxed as bad himself. Now, when the the situation started to turn bad, when, uh, when regular people didn't want to pay the, the whiskey tax, but Washington had no army to do anything about this situation. And he didn't have the power within Congress and within his presidency to, to have an army to go and enforce this tax, so you know what Washington did? Washington sent a, a small group of, of mostly militia, but he sent a small group of, of men to invade Ohio, which had never been a part of Amer- of the US it had ne- Ohio was Indian territory going all the way back to the French and Indian War. He had no Washington had no right to invade Ohio. But Washington sent men in anyway. He sent a small, uh, very weak body of uh, soldiers to attack a very strong Indian stronghold. And they got butchered. The soldiers got butchered. And then Washington went to Congress and said, like so many presidents after him, look, guys, we're already at war. We're at war with these Indians. They've attacked us and killed our men. And he used that as an excuse so that Congress could, under an emergency, Give him the ability to have a standing army. So then he got his standing army. What did he do? Did he go into Ohio and avenge the deaths of all those soldiers? Did he take care of of Little Turtle and the other the other Indians in Ohio with the with his new army? No. He invaded Pennsylvania and killed American citizens who were fighting against his whiskey tax. That's what he did. After he went to Congress and said, I need an army so that I can battle the Indians in the Northwest. That's what Ohio was considered then. And they gave him the army to do that with. And instead of going and facing the Indians, he went and killed the Appalachians in Pennsylvania. That's what George Washington did. And now his face is on Mount Rushmore. And we hear lies about him like, oh, he's so honest. No, he was not honest. He was a politician who bought his way into his position. Abe Lincoln was a notorious racist who wanted all black people rounded up and sent to Africa, and that includes anyone of mixed race. He was very specific about this. He talked about it often, and he wrote about it. It's in his speeches. Only, only people in what's referred to as the Lincoln cult tried to deny this, but it's a fact of history. Abraham Lincoln was a horrible racist. Uh, Abe Lincoln invited Frederick Douglass to the White House, um, called him his friend, used Douglass' name to sway politicians. It was all over the newspapers. Lincoln and Douglass are good buddies, right? No, Lincoln hated Douglass, wouldn't eat at the same table with him, refused to have him uh, at the table at the White House because he wouldn't eat with a black man. Uh, the first time that Douglass came to the White House, Abraham Lincoln wouldn't allow him inside. He made him made him meet outside on the porch, cause he didn't want him inside the house. He didn't want a black man inside the house. That's Abraham Lincoln for you. Teddy Roosevelt was literally insane. Now that's not just me saying that. His son said that. His son said that his father, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, was insane. He said Teddy he said my dad is the kind of a guy that would go to a funeral or a wedding and demand to be the center of attention. He had to constantly be the center of attention and in addition to that he 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 was a bloodthirsty warmonger. I mean he literally loved war. He loved to see people getting killed in war. He liked to witness it firsthand. He loved killing. That's Teddy Roosevelt. He literally was insane. Thomas Jefferson was a hypocrite. He spoke against slavery and he owned slaves. He said the Constitution would fail to restrain government. And then once he got elected as president, he violated the Constitution. He railed against the Alien and Sedition Acts. And then as soon as he became president, what did he do? He used the Alien and Sedition Acts to pu- to punish his political opponents. That's, that's what Thomas Jefferson did. These are the four faces up there on Mount Rushmore. This is what they're not remembered for. Instead, we remember remember a myth about them that never happened. History, as most people know it, is a series of lies, carefully formed to keep people fooled about what really happened. I think it was uh, Napoleon that said, and he may have been quoting somebody else, that history is written by the victors. And, you know, what he meant by that is, that it's always written to glorify whoever it is that's in power and and I think maybe more than anybody else Napoleon is a great example of this because according to whether Napoleon was in power or whether he was often you know deposed and and off uh, in prison in an island that that's how the narrative of Napoleon changed he was either the greatest man ever he was He's wonderful, he's a great leader, he's a military tactician, he's a wonderful guy. Or, when he was out of power, he's crazy, he's evil, he wants to take over the world. And, and, how, and how the narrative was written about Napoleon was entirely based on whether or not he was in power at the time. Um, a good example of how history gets twisted and how people have their attention. You know, it, it's very much like a magician's act one of the one of the one of the the standards of a magician's act is redirection so uh you're distracted by the lady in skimpy clothing and you don't realize that he just slid a mirror into into place and it now changes how the angle that you see things and and you think that he cut the lady in half and when he didn't or um or there's a puff of smoke and it draws your attention and you don't realize when he did that he did a sleight of hand and switched the position of something, and now there's flowers or whatever. Um, it's all it's all distraction. It's getting you to look one direction while something else happens. Um, thieves will do this. This is how you pickpocket. You get one person. You get you get a really sexy lady to bump into a guy, and then stop and apologize to him. And while you're doing while well that while well the lady's doing that the other person picks the guy's pocket, and he doesn't notice that there's a hand in his pocket because the lady has distracted him. That's how that's how it works. And government does this exact same thing with history. They'll give you things that draw your attention, and while you're looking at that, they do something completely different. That's kind of the idea of a red herring. When we're talking about logic and we're talking about uh, uh, logical fallacies, a red herring is one of those. It's where, it's where you... Uh, you literally locate, like, so here's the situation like, like you've got a, a, a bloodhound, you've got a dog on a leash, and he's following a trail. So, so, the dog is following a trail, and the person who's being followed wants to throw the dog off the trail. So, he has an old dead fish with him, literally a red herring. And so, he has this old dead fish with him, and the dog ends up locking onto the scent of the fish. And so the guy is running away from the from the dog, and he's dragging the fish, and he's making a good scent trail with the fish. And then he puts the fish on the back of a wagon, and the wagon goes down the road one direction, and the guy goes the other direction. And the dog comes up, smells where the wagon went, and starts following the red herring, starts following the wagon with the dead fish in it. That's the idea of a red herring. Well, that's what government does all the time with things. And a good example of this is the you know, and the right wing went nuts over this when it was when it was a hot topic. But a good example of this is Obama's birth certificate. That whole argument surrounding Obama's birth certificate was a red herring. It didn't matter. It didn't matter in the least. It doesn't matter where Barack Obama was born or who his mother or who his father was. None of that stuff matters. It only matters that you've got a gun to your head and more than half of your income is taken by the government and they tell you where to go and what to do and how to get there and they can stop you and search you at any time. And you overlook all that because, oh wait, Obama's birth certificate might not be right. He may not be constitutionally the president. Who cares? He's the president and if you don't believe it, Take a look at the guy with the machine gun in his vest that's standing next to him because that guy will convince you with 9 millimeter slugs. He's president because the gun says he's president and it doesn't matter where he was born. That is a red herring. What you should realize about Obama, and this has been brought out by everybody from the New York Times all the way down to the craziest conspiracy theories sitting in their basement with a foil hat on their head. The thing about Obama is that on his mother's side, just like George Bush, Obama is descended from a guy named Samuel Hinckley. Yeah, Hinckley. The same Hinckley family produced John Hinckley that shot Ronald Reagan. Barack Obama is a descendant of the Hinckley family. George W. Bush is Obama's 11th cousin. Lyndon Johnson is Obama's fourth cousin. Harry Truman is is Obama's seventh cousin, Jimmy Carter is his eighth cousin, and Gerald Ford is his tenth cousin. Do we see a pattern? And some people will say, well, that's that's just because there's so many people and you know, we're all pretty much related in some way. No, I am not Gerald Ford's tenth cousin or, Jerry, or Jimmy Carter's eighth cousin. I am not related. You can't look at the genealogies for yourself. If you're a Mormon, you can go down and look it up yourself. I am not related to Jimmy Carter in any way, and I have no relation whatsoever to Gerald Ford, Harry Truman, or Samuel Hinckley. I do not have them anywhere in my family tree. But Obama is also descended from a guy named Richard Fitzallan. He is the he was he's dead now. He was the he was the eighth Earl of Surrey, and his wife was named Elizabeth uh, Bohun. Now, from this line, Obama shares heraldry with Franklin Roosevelt, Herbert Hoover, Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, George Washington, John Quincy Adams, John Adams, James Madison, John Tyler, and Zachary Taylor. From this line, from his mother's side, Obama is descended from English royalty, Swedish royalty, and French royalty, going back to Charlemagne. The current Queen of England, Elizabeth II, is a distant relative of most American presidents including Obama. Now this means nothing to me. Heraldry means nothing to me. And to most Americans, that's the, that's the situation. But let me tell you something, folks. To these people, it's everything. Barack Obama would not have been allowed to be president if he were not pre-chosen ahead of time with all this. This is not an accident. This is not this, it's a design. It's not a, it's not a coincidence. American elections are now and always have been a scam. The United States has been run by aristocrats based on heraldry since the days of George Washington. This was made clear in the founding documents of the Society of the Cincinnati, which was based on the idea that George Washington was the founder and father of this country and would be uh, proclaimed as such. The Society of the Cincinnati was an organization put together by Washington's officers to make sure that they got control of the fledgling new nation, and they did it. They did it through a military coup when they took over Congress with military presence and forced a vote to accept the Constitution as the founding document of the federal government. So should we defend the Constitution? What is the Constitution? We're taught that it's a document that restrains government and ensures our rights. But does that make any sense? Has it ever done this? Can it do this? Can a paper restrain tyrants? Can a paper change the nature of humans who want power? It cannot. It's a document that was written by people who wanted power so that they could justify their power and so that they could remain in power and so that they could control who's in power. The Constitution was never intended to restrain government. The Constitution was a con job from day one. It was the result of a military coup executed by a small group of elites made up of Washington's officers and their financial supporters who were almost all bankers and land speculators. I've done other podcasts where I actually name these guys' names, and you can look them up for yourself. And you can go back and find my other podcasts on this topic, where I actually go through and name the people who were at the Constitutional Convention. They are not the same people who who declared independence. They were a completely different people than, than signed the Declaration of Independence. We're talking about a whole different group of people, backed by Washington's personal guard, now, let me tell you about some land schemes. I mentioned land speculators, and I mentioned some, uh, some land schemes before. Let me go into specifics. I want to tell you about two land schemes that were taking place around the time of the, f- of the forming of the new United States government. So here's the first land scheme I want to describe. Um, during the actual War of Independence, Washington forced poor farmers to stay in the army under threat of execution so first they would go out and they would convince somebody to join the army so that you can so we can have liberty we can fight off these british and we can we can own our own property and not be taxed by these nasty british and and we can you know we will be the ones who tell us how to live we're not gonna let those people in 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 england tell us how to live so so people signed up signed into the army and they would they would sign up for like six months right or or a year Well, when that commission was out, Washington would not let them leave. Under threat of execution, and he did execute some. Under threat of execution, he forced those poor farmers to stay in the army. And during that time, Congress refused to pay the soldiers until they were so starved and weak that they literally couldn't fight. They couldn't fight the British, and they also couldn't fight Washington and his his guards. Now think about this a little bit. So all these farmers, so we were told, you know, as kids growing up in school and everything, oh, Washington was this great general. No, he didn't. Washington spent almost the entire war retreating, running away from the British, avoiding a battle because he knew he couldn't stand up to the British in battle. He knew his, his, his troops were not strong enough. They were starving. They were literally starving. And he kept them in that position. Congress didn't pay him. He didn't feed him. But if they tried to go back to their farms, he'd shoot them. Now, while these guys were in the army, Congress decided that it was okay for the individual states to start taxing land. Now, they the people, the landowners in the colonies under England, never paid land taxes. They never paid property taxes. But now, all of a sudden, the new states introduced these land taxes, these property taxes. And the tax had to be paid in either gold or silver. This is when Congress was issuing script to the soldiers. Congress, when, when Congress finally did pay the soldiers, it was in this worthless script. It was not in gold and silver. So the soldiers couldn't even take the script and go pay their land taxes. The soldiers um, the soldiers were not allowed to go home and work their fields, so they couldn't make money that way, and they couldn't pay their land taxes with, uh, with the script. And they couldn't leave the army. And so eventually state governments ended up taking the poor farmer's land. A lot of it. This is what the uh, Shays' Rebellion was about. Now, um, so the bankers come through, and the bankers start buying the script off of the off the Continental soldiers. Uh, but they're buying it at pennies to the dollar. So, uh, And not even that. It's, at times it was even worse than that. So the bankers are buying up all this worthless script, right? And that's kind of keeping the rebellion down because at least now the soldiers are getting some money. After the war, uh, after Washington that coup that I was talking about where Washington and his officers took control of the Continental Congress and then pushed through the Constitution, formed the federal government, then the federal government has the ability to tax, which they did right away, and the federal government then starts buying the script from the bankers using money, using gold and silver. So the bankers are able to take all this worthless script that they bought for almost nothing and sell it to the U.S. government for gold and silver. And then the bankers and the land speculators that are in on this buy up all the farmland from the states and then start selling it back to the farmers at a profit. Now that was a land scheme that was taking place. And that's to a certain extent what Shays' Rebellion was about. And and this is this is not necessarily, Washington wasn't necessarily profiting by that itself, but he was there and he was a part of it and his men were profiting from it, his officers. But here's an earlier land scheme that Washington was a part of. Before the War of Independence, George Washington and his business partners illegally surveyed and mapped what is now called Ohio. At the time, Ohio was not a part of the colonies. England released all interests in Ohio after the French and Indian War. With agreement between the King of England and the King of France, Ohio belonged to the Indian tribes, and was and therefore the, the French could go in there and set up, they weren't supposed to set up forts, but they could set up settlements where they could trade with the Indians and so forth. That was part of the settlement to the French and Indian War. So Ohio was not a part of the U.S. when the U.S. defeated Uh, Great Britain and won their independence. Ohio was not a part of that. But once the war was over, remember, Washington's got it all surveyed and mapped. Once the war is over, Washington was in control of the federal government after the coup, and he sent the army into Ohio for himself and his business partners to secure that land from the Indians. You see, he had a vested interest in not only in the whiskey rebellion and in using american soldiers to to quiet the whiskey rebellion in pennsylvania he also had land speculation schemes for ohio and he used federal troops to go into ohio and defeat the indians and push them into indiana because george washington had already surveyed it all out and took uh, ownership of the land and divided it up between him and his and his officers that he had to pay for uh, for the coup to, that was their that was their earnings for being a part of that coup that took over and pushed the constitution into place. Washington paid them in land from Ohio or in gold that he made off of the land, and just to push the point through. The United States government was a con from day one. It was orchestrated by Washington and his officers and their banker allies. And it was uh, the, it, the intent uh, was to keep the aristocrats in power. And people like Hamilton actually said this openly. Hamilton referred to himself regularly as an aristocrat and said regularly that it was the job of the aristocrats to control the poor people because they're dumb anyway. The, the non-aristocrats, they they they're like children, and and you know it's the job of the aristocrats to take care of them, and that's the the thinking that these people had then and now. Back in the day, many of the people who we consider or the folks say today are the founding fathers. A lot of those people were very much against this constitution. If you've never heard of the anti-federalists or the anti-federalist papers. That's what I'm talking about. There were some of the most prominent people of the day were against the Constitution because they saw what it was. They saw the con that it was. They saw that it was based on Washington's personal guard and his military threats against Americans. That's why the Constitution got passed, because Washington threatened with it. And so some of the people, like Henry, uh, Richard Henry Lee, Uh, sent a letter to George Mason, Mason, uh, try that again, Richard Henry Lee sent a letter to George Mason on October 1st, 1787, and he called the Constitution, and this is a quote, the deviousness of Congress's action. Samuel Bryan, October 5th, 1787, called the Constitution a most daring attempt to establish a despotic aristocracy. And he said that it was written for, and this is a direct quote, The interests of the well-born few. William Findlay, November 6, 1787, called the writers of the Constitution a set, this is a quote, a set of aspiring despots who will make us all their slaves, end quote. Thomas Jefferson, in a letter to William Stephen Smith, dated November 13, 1787, wrote the famous phrase, The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. You know what, folks? You've been lied to. You've been had. You've heard that phrase. You've seen it on T-shirts. You've seen it on Gadsden flags. But do you know that that is not in reference to the British crown? Do you know that he said that after the War of Independence? The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. He said that in reference to George Washington. And the other Federalists. Let that sink in for a moment, Constitutionalist. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Thomas Jefferson referring to the Federalists. Hamilton, Washington, Madison. Think about that. John Adams. That's who he was talking about. He was not talking about the King of England. He was not talking about the British. Are you ever told that in school? Were you ever told that? Did you see that on on some TV show? On some patriotic movie? Did they point that out? Did they ever point out that Jefferson, when he said that a little revolution now and then is a good thing, was talking about killing Federalists? Did you know that? He was not talking about the British. He was talking about extending the War of Independence so that people could be independent of the Federalists. George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, those guys. George Mason, in his Objections to the Constitution, dated November 22, 1787, said that America under the Constitution would be a quote, corrupt, oppressive Aristocracy. That's George Mason's words. Patrick Henry, you might have heard of him, Patrick Henry said to the Virginia Ratifying Convention in June of 1788, and this is a direct quote, They will not reason with you about the effect of this Constitution. They will not take the opinion of this committee concerning its operation. They will construe it as they please. And Patrick Henry was right. That's exactly what they have done for some 230 years. They have construed it as they please. Patrick Henry also said, Show me that age and country where the rights and liberties of the people were placed on the sole chance of their rulers being good men, without a a consequent loss of liberty. At the Virginia Ratifying Convention, Patrick Henry made the same argument that economist Hans-Hermann Hoppe has pointed out, namely that a caretaker government will always loot the country, whereas an ownership government can often preserve the wealth of a country. Now, what does that mean? You know, Oftentimes you read Hans-Hermann Hoppe's explanation of this, and it's befuzzling. It's it's difficult to read between the language barrier and the fact that he's like a super genius guy with a massive brain. And he doesn't think and he doesn't talk on common terms. Patrick Henry was the same way. And if you read this statement to the Virginia Ratifying Convention um, in, in reference to the Constitution, Patrick Henry's wording is very convoluted and it's very difficult to, to see what it is that he's talking about. But let me just explain to you really quick. Uh, i I did a, a uh, an article on this several years ago where I talked about owners of two uh hotels you have um, you have a, a rich guy and he owns two different hotels and he dies and so he leaves one directly to his nephew the The hotel now belongs to that nephew the other one um, he leaves to his nephew to take care of, but after a certain amount of years. The 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 hotel and the property are supposed to then go to uh, a, a charity that the uncle picks out. Okay, so so one nephew is the owner of the of a hotel. The other nephew is a caretaker of the hotel. Now he can make as much money as he wants during that time frame, but at the end of it, he has to turn it over to somebody else. And so you look at this situation, you say, okay, so how are these two men? One owning a hotel, the other being a caretaker of the hotel. How are they going to treat this? How are they going to treat their stewardship over this? Well, the owner of the hotel, it's his. So he has a vested interest in making sure that it's successful. And if he can make money off of it and improve it, he can actually make more money and he'll have something to give to his family when he passes on. So he has this great incentive to take care of it, to improve it, and to pass it on. But the caretaker nephew does not have that incentive. His only incentive is to get as much out of it as he can, and therefore, um, and, and at the end, turn it over to the charity. And then because of that, therefore, he will loot it of all of its value. So we have we project ahead twenty years and look at the two hotels. One has been cared for, improved, advertised. And 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 is a, a really good functioning hotel. The other one is ready to be turned over to the charity. And what does the guy do with it? Well, he ran it into the ground. He didn't do any repairs. He got as much out of it as he could. And at the end, somehow it got set on fire. And he collected the insurance money out of it. And then he gave the the bare lot to the charity. And that's what his motivation would have driven him to do. An example of this for Lord of the Ring geeks is uh, the kingdom of Gondor. As long as it was a kingdom in the property of the king and the king's family, it was taken care of. But when the king vanished and it was put into the hands of a caretaker, the caretaker essentially looted it for all it was worth, but but he couldn't preserve it. The motivations were not there. So that's the difference in a caretaker government. And an ownership government. So so what Patrick Henry was saying, much like what Hans-Hermann Hoppe was saying, is, look, you guys jumped out of this situation with the King of England, and now you're going to set up a caretaker government. It's going to be worse than what you had before. He warned them of this. He, he, he told them right out, you're going to end up paying, you fought against taxes, you're going to end up paying more taxes than you can imagine. That's what he's saying to them, because that's what a caretaker government will do. There's no ownership they're only going to be in office a few years, and then they're going to get out. They're going to loot as much as they can during that few years. And I hear conservative people say all the time, well, what we need is what we need is uh, term limits. If we just had term limits. No, that will do the opposite. If you put term limits, that means instead of having a lifetime to loot the government, you've given this politician only one or two or four terms, or whatever it is that you're limiting his terms to, He's going to loot, loot uh, much more fanatically during that time frame because he's only going to be in there one or two uh, turns. So that's going to give him the motivation to get as much as he can, as fast as he can. He's just going to loot more that way. Term limits is not the answer. Okay, let me get back, uh, let me get back to this federalist, anti-federalist thing. If you go over to Wikipedia and you read uh, for what the Federalists were and what the Anti-Federalists were, the Federalist Papers are a series of. This is from Wiki. The Federalist Papers are a series of 85 articles and essays written written by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, promoting the ratification of the United States Constitution. And also from Wiki, the Anti-Federalist Papers are a collection of articles written in opposition to the ratification of the 1787 United States Constitution. Unlike the Federalist Papers written in support of the Constitution, the authors of these articles, mostly operating under pen names, were not engaged in a strictly organized project. The Anti-Federal, okay, and so that's uh, an end of quote at Wiki. The anti Federals had to keep their identity a secret because uh, because of the violent nature of the Federalists. They wanted to live. I've read before from a, a letter that George Washington sent to uh, Richard Henry Lee. And in it, he makes a veiled threat to Lee, which essentially was like, he was kind of, it was kind of like, uh, You know, in organized crime, you have situations where somebody says something like, "Yeah, it's 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 a real nice business you got here. I'd hate to see anything happen to it. Know what I'm saying? You got a you got a real nice family there. You got a real nice family, real pretty wife. I'd hate to see anything happen to her." Now, this is the kind of language that people understand. And George Washington's letter to Richard Henry Lee. Reads exactly like that. It's in reference to the Shea Rebellion, in which Richard Henry Lee had kind of expressed, you know, um, well, I don't like that, but I certainly understand why it's happening, and maybe we need, maybe it needs to spread some. And this was also, you know, what I mentioned before: Thomas Jefferson had said that, well, a little rebellion is good now and then. You know, the tree of liberty needs a little uh, watering from now, from time to time. And George Washington put these veiled threats to these anti-federalists and said essentially you know i have my own army and you need to either be a part of us and profit from it or you need to shut up because you don't want to see me mad that's kind of what washington said to them the federalists in philadelphia this the, they didn't call themselves that at the time but they were essentially that uh, hung quakers and took their homes and took their land and exiled some to Virginia, uh, kicked them out of Pennsylvania, kicked them out of Philadelphia. They hung Quakers in the town square, and it was mostly because they, uh, uh, the Quakers, were opposed to these, uh, to the centralized government that these guys were wanting to push on everyone, and they were unwilling to fight the British. Uh, they they wanted to be left in peace they this war this fight was not their fight and they you know they were pacifists by their religion so the answer was uh, to hang them and that's the the kind of activity that that's the way these guys um got into power it's the way they stay in power it's the way they're in power right now uh think about what's happening there in Nevada They think about what happened at Waco. Think about Ruby Ridge. Think about what happens at a thousand Wacos every year where people are simply trying to live their own life and a SWAT team kicks in the door. And you say, well, those those guys are criminals. They probably deserve that. Well, today's criminals with maybe marijuana are not going to be criminals next year when they when they pass the law and change the laws. How is it different? How is it? How is it criminal one year and not criminal another year? And what's it going to be when they pass a law that says you can't have a, a handgun? When they come kick in your door for that? When the when the SWAT team is, shows up at houses in Massachusetts in the next couple of years to, uh, to enforce their anti-gun laws in Massachusetts and New York, are those guys going to be criminals? And we can just say, well, that's what they get for being criminals. No, the government should never have the right to do that. According to old English tradition, a man's house was his castle. And and the government literally could not come through the door. This is all new. This is not how it used to be. This is what we've got since the a federal government took over in the United States. And, you know, you often see these conservatives and these uh, right-wingers uh, quoting the federalist papers in support of the Constitution, why we need the Constitution, why the Constitution is, is going to save us, and all this kind of thing. Well, quoting the Federalist Papers in defense of the Constitution is like, is like asking a used car salesman if the car that he's selling you is good. Of course he's going to tell you it's good. Uh, don't ask a Chevy dealer about a new Honda. Don't trust what the Chevy dealer has to say about the Hondas. Don't trust the buy-here-pay-here here, used car dealer when he tells you that, the, that this car was owned by a little old lady who only drove it to church on Sundays. Would, would you spend your money buying something from somebody like that and just trusting them on their word? Well, when you trust what's written in the Federalist Papers, you're trusting uh, the exact guys who were pushing the con at the time. It's very much reading the Federalist Papers and accept, accepting the words of guys like uh, Hamilton and Madison it's exactly like trusting a used car salesman, except it's far worse because the used car salesman is not going to uh, have the SWAT team kick in your doors, take your cattle, shoot your children like the federal government does, burn your children like the federal government does. When you're giving away your, your freedom, be skeptical about it. And when you trust the Constitution, you're giving away your freedom. You're saying that your rights come from a piece of paper. You're saying that your rights can be defended by a piece of paper. You're saying that people in government are going to obey a piece of paper. But you know what? You didn't sign that paper, and no one living signed that paper. And it's not—it's a contract, but it's not a binding contract, because no one living signed it, and no one living agreed to it. It is useless, but it's worse than useless. It makes you think it's doing something. It makes you think it's bringing you safety. But it, in fact, is a tool of your slavery. It is a sign of the chains that bind your ankles. Folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much.